This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not provided as financial, legal, or any other advice. The information is not investment advice or an offer to buy or sell any securities or make any investment. The views expressed by guest speakers are their own and any reference to third-party products, services, or information does not constitute an endorsement thereof by SNN or its affiliates. SNN expressly disclaims all liability for any individual's use of the information presented in this podcast. My guest on the show today is Nick Blitterswike, CEO of UGE International Limited. It's a publicly traded company. I got two symbols for you, UGE on the TSX Venture and UGEIF on the OTCQB. UGE develops, owns, and operates commercial and community solar and battery storage projects. Their distributed energy solutions deliver cheaper, cleaner energy to businesses and consumers with no upfront cost. And with over 500 megawatts of global experience, they are working daily to power a more sustainable world, according to the company's website. UGE recently presented at the Microcap Club Leadership Summit, a phenomenal event, by the way, where CEO Nick Blitterswike did a presentation and Q&A with an investor friend of mine, Jeff Cowell. It was a packed room with some of the best microcap investors in the game, and Nick did a great job, which by definition means clearly describing what the company does, prospects for future growth, addressing potential risks that could impede that growth, and vision for the company. I first interviewed Nick in November 2016. It's about seven years ago now, and I've done six short-form interviews with him since then. I invited him on this podcast as a showcase of how companies evolve, how difficult it can be to refine a company's message despite thinking it's simple, and the importance of recognizing the need to change your business strategy. Furthermore, we also discuss... UGE's pivot to full life cycle approach to developing and owning community solar projects, the company's backlog and typical project sizes, and of course, Nick's vision for the company. With that, please enjoy my conversation with Nick Blitterswike, CEO of UGE International Limited. Nick, thank you for joining me today. How are you doing, man? Oh, my pleasure, Bobby. Great to see you. Doing well. You? I know. I'm listen. I, I, we were just saying offline, and uh, we're recording this on what Tuesday, September 26th. Is a long time no see. I, I just saw you at a at Ian Castle's Microcap Club Leadership Summit, and um, did a phenomenal presentation, man. Look, I've known you for years. You, I've seen the many presentations, we've done many CEO interviews. It was really tight and, and high quality. I just figured I'd, you know, I don't know if I got a chance to tell you that in person, but I figured I'd tell you here. Well, no, I, I appreciate it, but uh, I think that the story is kind of telling itself these days. You know, obviously we're really excited about the growth we're experiencing. And um, it's been a long, long time coming. I'm sure we'll get into that. But uh, but we really hit our stride here the last several quarters, years, um, really starting to come to fruition. So great event. Um, you and I were talking about that offline, but uh, right up there with your own Vegas event in late April, um, really enjoy both of them. And I think both of them have become, uh, can't miss uh, if, you're, if you're lucky enough to, to be able to go. So yeah. it was great to see you there. And I enjoyed that uh, conference very much as well. Awesome. I do appreciate that. Thank you. So let's dig into the story then a little bit. You know, if, if my first question that I ask everybody on here, if you had to describe UGE in one sentence, how would you do it? So UGE develops mid-scale solar and energy storage projects. That's that's pretty much it. Uh, but we, we, we create projects just like the one up on the wall behind us, um, right from the beginning to the end. And uh, we're building a portfolio of these types of projects across the U.S., very good. All right, now let's get into the history. Like we, like I said, you know, you're one of the founders of the business. I think you found what over 12 years ago now. Is it 12? It, it's coming up on 14 years. 14, since I okay. Full time. Yeah, yeah. So December 1st of 09 was the the, the day I left my day job. Um, so I was a, an actuary before this, and uh, 
Uh, I was at AIG up until that point. So um, yeah, 14 years of, of, of really focused on um, and growing the, the UGE machine that we're getting increasingly excited about here. So what was that original thesis for founding the business? And that up until the pivot, what, what, how did that evolve? And then we'll get into the pivot itself. Yeah. And, and the, the so-called pivot, um, you know, as any entrepreneur would, would tell you, uh, there's, there's an aspect of, of pivoting uh, all the time to get the model right over time. But the, the so-called pivot that you mentioned there was a few years ago when we transitioned to an IPP model, building a portfolio and holding on to these projects ourselves. But to answer your question about the original idea, you know, it's you actually, you kind of need to go back in the memory bank, you know, in terms of the, the energy transition, we, we didn't even call it that back then, to kind of remember the place we were in. Because in that uh, kind of clean tech 1.0 timeframe of whatever the years were, 2005 to 2012 or something like that, um, I remember people used to describe it that 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 uh, that phase of this industry was really owned by the PhDs. So I'm sitting there at, at AIG and, and I was at JP Morgan before that, toiling away and, um, uh, and and reading all this stuff on clean tech, which was very technical, uh, frankly, you know, it's different, different uh, panel manufacturers and all other different uh, technologies too, talking about the technology like a PhD would. And I remember sitting there being like, hey, I... I, I love renewable energy. I want renewable energy to succeed. But if I'm a business right now, I have no idea um, what I'm, how I'm supposed to choose one brand versus the others. These, these companies, you, these talk about themselves as being like the apple of solar panels. Like people used to use that, that type of description. Um, and, and people used to think that you would pick up panels at Home Depot. Like that, that was sort of the, the way people thought. And the initial idea was like, no, there needs to be a solutions-based approach to this. We, we need to be this, this, this layer in between the technology and the, and the use case to package together solutions, financing included, uh, to, be able, to be able to provide um, you know, solutions to those folks. So that was the original thesis. Um, you know, we have iterated over time to, to get that right. It's taken on a whole life of its own with all the new ways that you can use renewable energy nowadays versus back then. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that was the original idea, solutions-based approach for the built environment. Very good. And, and so when we, I, we've done a number of interviews over the years, but I'm going to go back to when we did one, I think just, you know, right early on in the pandemic, we posted that, I think it was May 4th, 2020. So I remember it was Star Wars that made a stupid joke about that. I think in an interview afterwards, but I think it was around then that the company had just announced the the pivot. So can you explain quickly what the business model was and then what the pivot was and then the reason for why the company decided to change the model to go where you, I mean, where you're currently at today? Yeah, and so in an attempt not to be long-winded to try to simplify it here a little bit, um, but I do need to go into the history a little bit here. So mid 2010, so 2014 to 2016, we were newly a public company like a lot of public companies, probably went, went uh, or Canadian ones at least, went public too, too early and too small. We were a newly pub public company and we were that solutions-based approach that I was talking about. Um, and we, you know, we, we, uh, we wanted to get bigger and we wanted to kind of start building out the life cycle. UGE was uh, you know, customer-facing you know, those solutions, but we'd re rely on other people to finance them, other people to, uh, to build them, other people to engineer them. Um, so uh, un under that under that background, we came across a Toronto-based company that was uh, top two market share in the Ontario market, which had been thriving based on a, a long-term uh, incentive program in Ontario and engineering and building projects. So I was like, okay, great. 
technical backend to what we do. One plus one equals three. Let's let's do it. Um, early 2016, we made that acquisition. Um, there's a little bit of a side story in that the number the the other top two company in that space, the parent company, um, you know, decided to get out of it. They came to us and we, in essence, uh, completed a one dollar transaction just to, you know to take over that business. But what we found ourselves is that okay, all of a sudden, we had all this revenue for engineering and building projects for other developers, um, which was which was not the bread and butter. It was not who we wanted to be when we grew up, but it kind of took over the business in a sense. So um, in that sort of 2017, 2018 timeframe, we were building a lot of projects for other developers. Um, a lot of it was in Ontario. Mid-2018, the Ontario market, uh, the bottom fell out of it after an election. Um, and we were kind of caught holding the bag of on some projects for developers uh, uh, you know, stopped, stopped paying us. And, you know, we ended up uh, uh, you know, going after them and selling out of port, et cetera. But, but it, it was a tough time for UGE, second half of 18 into 19. Um, but that became the impetus to say, hey, let's make the hard decisions now, clean up the business model, make sure that we're focused on who that is, like who we want to be when we grow up and stop building projects for other developers, number one, and start financing and holding on to these projects, number two. So the beginning of 2020 was really sort of the rebirth of UGE from that perspective no longer building projects for other developers um, and, uh, and and looking to have that full life cycle approach. So, you know, because of that, because the depths of the turnaround we had gone through really through 2019, uh, we were we were a leaner team, but but uh, but really for the first time in a number of years, we felt like a real clear focus on, um, you know, who we wanted to be, what projects we wanted to do, how we wanted to do them. Um, and, uh, you know, a little pandemic popped in, <laughs> popped into the equation, but, you know, aside from that, it's, it's really been a good three and a half years since then. So, um, you know, I, 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 kudos to you early May there to, to do that. Um, I think it was, I think you did a, an online conference. I think you were the first one to, to, to pull that off. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that was right around the rebirth of UGE. hundred percent. Yeah, no, I remember in that interview at the time you talked about how, Post pivot, you're about, and and this you can explain like what we mean by um, you know how many megawatts you had within the portfolio, right? And and what that means from a monetization perspective, you know the what it means to break out, all, all that good stuff. But I remember at that time it was like I think 17 megawatts, meaning you had 17 megawatts worth of projects within the UGE portfolio. And then I think we did another interview back in December 2021 where you had gone over 100 megawatts at that time and now where are we at we're at what, what's what's the number well yeah so the the most recent backlog number uh, around 350 megawatts give or take uh and then the, the operational project adds a, a, a little bit more on top of that um and and then i think that you know it, it it also deserves saying in may of 2020 we would have really reported on like every project we had a contract for um and i and i mentioned that delineation because by that same measure right now, we're getting close to a, a gigawatt, a thousand megawatts of projects that were, you know, contracted, developing, et cetera. But we've become a lot more um, rigid, uh, I think, in terms of what projects we count as part of the portfolio, uh, count in the backlog, et cetera, um, as, as, as we're executing on it. For sure. So, okay. So let's explain the business model for those that aren't familiar. What is the business model? How does it work? What does it mean to both be a developer and then also to say that you have the you know, these projects was part of your portfolio and what that means going forward once they're done and then, and all that good job, all that jazz. Yeah. Yeah. So um, to touch on it a little bit and uh, obviously happy to go into more detail here too, but in essence, 
you know, like a project like the one on the wall, you know, the one that happens to be on the wall behind me here. Um, in essence, we're saying like, hey, what's a good uh, use case? It could be like, hey, this market is very good or this customer is very good or, um, you know, whatever the case may be. We're, we're like, hey, we really like to develop projects here. Um, our origination team goes out and finds the land or the rooftop or, or, or wherever we're going to build that project. So they're and out the there. And the focus yeah. is on community solar projects, right? Yeah, out of our solar projects, that's uh, I think ninety five percent or something okay. like that. So community solar is the the big one, um, and there's a lot of these like vectors that cut through the story here, right? So in um, in you know at, at that same sort of timeline that we were talking about, we developed the first community solar project in New York starting in late 2017. Um, so even like community solar is a pretty recent aspect of the U.S. solar space. It's been the last couple of years the fastest growing part of the U.S. solar industry. Um, uh, so, so we were kind of right to, to jump on that when we did, but, uh, but yeah, so community solar, in essence, one project serving multiple off takers within the quote unquote community, which tends to be the, the same utility territory. Um, and so going back to your question there. So, yeah, so we, we go, out, we identify, you know, we call it origination, but we, we go and we find places to lock down that space, sign a contract with the land or building owner to develop a project there. Um, and then we go through development. And so development for someone outside of the industry, I think is the most underappreciated, generally speaking, part of the industry in that, uh, so people have heard probably about interconnection, you know, it's in essence, getting enough space on the grid to connect your project, utilities are, are, are tend to be fairly slow. And so that's the, the high pull in the tent for these projects. And in the meantime, we're doing the engineering, doing the permitting, getting financing lined up, um, you know, environmental studies, all these other things that go with it. There's actually like, you know, we, we started tracking uh, what we call project actions, but all the steps that we take to move a project through, there's about 450 from like origination all the way through to operating, uh, operating projects. Um, so that's where the, you know, where, where the, the returns are made in essence. Um, but yeah, so um, to, to try to, to try to put like a bow on that, you know, so we move the projects all the way through to the point where they become an operating project. We've brought in financing. Um, we're owning and operating those over time. So, you know, A, we've created this thing of value. But I think the other aspect that's really interesting from the public company perspective is that because of that full life cycle approach and creating these high value projects, um, we, 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 we pay ourselves actually out what's called a developer fee as we, as we finance and build out these projects. And so it's sort of like the best of both worlds. As a developer, we, we get this short-term cash flow, a uh, cash inflow from, from executing on the project. And then we also get the, you know, 25 to 40 years of recurring revenue, ongoing cash flow from the project as well. So, um, you know, that's what we're quite excited about as this portfolio grows. It's, a, it's no longer about, um, you know, what have you done for me lately? It's actually, no, no, we have this growing portfolio that's going to, you know, provide us uh, a, a nest egg or whatever for, for decades to come. Absolutely. You know, I think my favorite slide from your presentation last week that you put out there was you had one that was uh, UGE's model benefits from the best of the buy and hold and developer approaches, where you it's like a Venn diagram where on one side you have the buy and hold uh, private equity investors, on the other side, the develop and flip companies, and then UGE kind of overlaps with both. Can you explain a little bit more about how that works and why this Venn diagram is framed in this way? Yeah, yeah. And, and so it actually, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a good Tee, uh, teeing up like for, for my, myself to touch on a different aspect because um, you know we're in an industry 
where it's still quite fragmented in the sense of you know, developers typically develop and flip and then infrastructure funds, IPPs, et cetera, typically are buying those projects. And, and so for, for multiple reasons, you know, we just, we see that as being very inefficient, you know, like having both those people at the table and it, it quite often, by the way, they'll actually get like flipped more often than that. Um, and I think that that even simplifies it. Uh, so you have multiple sets of lawyers and accountants and appraisers and everything else involved. And it makes it really inefficient for uh, the clients that are involved, both buying the energy and also the, the hosts of the where, where the projects are built. Uh, there's all sorts of margin stacking within it, et cetera. So for you know, like number one is this, I believe that we're a lot more efficient, capture a lot more value, create a lot more value by, by having that full lifecycle approach. But then also, like just like those developers, we're getting short-term cash as we get these projects to NTP and COD, which are the beginning and end of construction, um, where, where the project is uh, you know, real and completed. Um, but then we're also very well aligned with the, the buyers of the energy, the financiers of the project, the, the host where the, the project is as well. So you know, I think um, we're, we're actually like in the public sphere, we're, we're really quite unique in terms of that, that full life cycle approach. There's a few private equity backed um, companies that we do consider a bit more peers with that approach. We're not completely uh, by our by our, our lonesome on it, but um, we're, we're certainly ahead of the curve in terms of moving that direction. You know, for an average project from like origination to all right, it's coming online. What's usually the time it takes from for that whole process? So we say two to three years. Um, you could do it like you know some markets you'll, you'll you'll see something like a year, sometimes four. So it's it's a uh, it's, it's a bit of a broad range. Um, but yeah, it's it's that type of time frame. And I should mention. You know, the actual construction is um, like we'll, we'll hire subcontractors to build it out for us. But that that actual construction isn't, you know, uh, call it four to nine months, depending on, on the situation. So most of that time frame is those development stages that I touched on earlier. Um, and that's important, I think, for a couple of reasons. One of them being the, the, the cash flow and the returns of the project. You know, we're, we're filling up this funnel with good projects. We're working their way through the interconnection phase. We're out very little. Uh, on those projects up until the point of construction. But at that point of construction, they're actually being fully funded by project finance. We actually start to you know, pay ourselves out this developer fee at that time. Absolutely. And I, you know what, I'll, I'll include a link in the show notes to the most recent presentation that's on UGE's investor relief, because I'm going to keep quoting from it a little bit, because I, I actually, there's a lot of great information in here for uh, to talk about and are inspiring some questions here today. So, you know, I, you know, one of the slides you also have is uh, how the backlog is is, uh, is obviously large and it's ge geographically well diversified. And if there's one thing that's, you know, not to get all political or anything like that, but, you know, having to do with solar and wind energy, you know, these renewables, that sometimes is a touchy subject in in some non-blue states, right? And some of the red states and whatnot. So can you touch on how the building the backlog and some, like what's, has been, has there been any barriers to entry from a political perspective in getting some of these projects launched, you know, other than on the, you know, you look at this map, you know, you got Oregon, California, Maine, New York, you know, you got, you got the coast well covered, but you do also have a couple of projects in Texas. So I'd love to hear more there. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a, it's a far reaching question. I, I think number one, like the number one thing I think about when I think about the diversified portfolio is that because states move at different speeds because of you know regulatory changes and, and so on, there's also, I think, like a certain path a state takes when it goes from 
um, starting to like starting a community solar program, for example, to like a mature community solar program. There's like different kind of arcs those states take. So we've we've become really big believers that it makes sense to have a diversified portfolio across different key markets across the country because different states will move at different times. Um, economics shift as that happens, etc. Um, and so we 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 feel really excited about having that diversified portfolio for 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 that uh for that reason. Um, the second thing I think about is on um like for community solar uh, as of the end of 2021. 75% of all community solar so far had been in just four states. Now, I think it's 23 states have community solar legislation. Um, a bunch of them are like, in, you know, have, are, they're either new programs or there's some programs like Michigan and Pennsylvania and, and others that are coming down the pike here. The point being is um, there's, there's, you know, there's a lot more to do in community solar is I guess, is I guess what I'm saying there, right? Just like the market is expanding right, be right before our eyes. Um, and so that's also leading us to these to these different markets too, but um, but uh, you know, sorry. Number three, I'll, I'll mention is you know while interconnection is uh, you know can be quite slow, can be quite bureaucratic. You have a state like Texas where, for kind of red state reasons, um, there's not much bureaucracy. You can actually move quite quickly, uh, and so from that perspective, it's it's nice to be active in a state like that. And I'll just say that from like a, an industry wide perspective, it's not just not just mid scale or community solar. But from an industry-wide perspective, you know, it's you know, probably in the last 12 months, you know, her, like some of the states have heard the most activity in are like Texas for sure, uh, but uh, states like Arkansas, Kentucky, you know, states that you, you would have never expected it. And, and you know, it just speaks to the economics now of solar. It, it's, um, uh, it's, it's at a point where, you know, there was a Morgan Stanley report uh, out just in the last couple of weeks that said by the end of 2026, 90% of all new energy capacity being built out will be from renewable energy and solar being the vast majority of that 90%. So um, it's, it's, it is going past the point of red versus blue state. Um, yeah. So Nick, my next question for you, and, and we'll come back to some legislation stuff, you know, um, because there is, uh, you know, we're talking about the infrastructure uh, uh, bill and all that stuff, but we'll come back to that in a quick second, because there's another slide that I wanted to ask you about uh, that's uh, you saying it, or UGE says it, UGE says, has experienced rapid growth in under construction and operating assets over the last six months. And I'd love to hear why. The, the biggest reason is we talked about that sort of 2020 interview and the, 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 the growth of that backlog in that time frame, et cetera. And I talked about sort of that average two to three years to see projects uh, escape the end of the, uh, the development time frame and go into construction. You know, I think right now, um, you know, I think year to date, we're at something like around 18 megawatts of NTPs, uh, probably depending a bit on uh, the day, like the, the just in terms of the progress we're making on projects right now. Um, and um, and so it's really a matter of like maturation. These things take time. You track you, you track the, the progress through the different steps there. Um, and, and we're seeing really rapid growth. So I think if I'm not mistaken, I think June 30th of, of 23 versus June 30th of 22. Two, it was about five and a half x growth in terms of that late stage projects, and we're going to kind of consistently see uh, a lot more of those projects uh, drop out the, the bottom of the development funnel um, now that that uh, portfolio is maturing. Very good. All right, so now we'll get to the Inf Inf uh, Inflation Reduction Act. Can you explain a little bit, you know, why or why not this is a tailwind for the company? Yeah, and uh, the first thing I'll say is just holistically, um, you know. 
100%, this is the most significant legislation for renewable energy and you know, other things like EVs, um, certainly in the history of the US, uh, I, I would argue in the history of the world. Um, and, and so from that perspective, it's A, really exciting, and B, I think totally missed uh, by the public markets. It, it uh, you know, probably more for like macroeconomic and, and market reasons, um, the, you know, it, it just, it, it blows my mind that before the announcement from Manchin and Schumer in August of 22, solar stocks are down, which makes no sense uh, like in the long term based on um, the significance of, of, of this. So if I get away from hyperbole, though, and if I just talk about like, why is it important? So for the last couple of decades, renewable energy policy in the U.S. has really been tax policy. So the investment tax credit, uh, which was introduced by President Bush uh, close to 20 years ago, um, it was a way to incentivize adoption of technologies like solar and wind. Um, and it, it said, okay, you, you invest in one of these projects and you will get a 30% tax credit um, on, on, in essence, the value of that project. So that investment tax credit was uh, extended by, uh, by, by Obama, I think multiple times, by Trump even. Um, it had dropped to 26% so, uh, by the time that, uh, that Trump extended it, but, but he did extend it. Um, and then it, uh, you know, came to Biden's, uh, it came to Biden for, uh, for, for him to extend it as well. Um, and it, the timing was perfect in terms of the Inflation Reduction Act. So the first part uh, for, for solar, battery storage, et cetera, is a, a long-term extension of that 30%. Um, so, so it upped it back to 30% as a baseline. It extended it uh, for 10 years to start with. But then there's a clause in the Inflation Reduction Act that says, if CO2 emissions haven't fallen by 70% by the end of that 10 years, it'll be automatically extended until that happens. I, although I'd love for this not to be the case, we're not going to get to that level within 10 years. No, no forecasts that you see are going to get to that level. Um, so it really is like a very long-term pathway for us for, um, for the investment tax credit. But then the part that we're, you know, in addition to that, the part that we're most excited about is the Inflation Reduction Act targets a number of use cases to say, hey, if you do this, we'll give you even more. Um, and so those use cases are things like uh, low and moderate income communities, um, so-called energy communities. So these are places that, ha that had a lot of fossil fuel uh, uh, employment or, 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 or so on and so forth. Um, things like, uh, things like uh, landfills. I, I, this project actually is a capped landfill. You can't totally see it, but those panels are on top of a, of a landfill there. So things like that, uh, using domestic content, things like that, you can get additional incentive, which up, up the incentive uh, even further. And this, this drives IRR of these projects, it lessens um, other project, pro project financing needs that you'll have for these projects, et cetera. And, and so on that basis, uh, you know, it, it's, it's really quite lucrative for what we do and, and especially for community solar. Um, and then to just, there's one other piece that in the medium to long-term, we're really excited about you know, UGE is not a manufacturer. We work with the, the tier one manufacturers in this space. But, you know, since 2012, when Obama brought in these sort of anti-China tariffs on solar equipment, it's been, there's been a stick since 2012, you know, carrot and stick, and there's been a stick that says, hey, we're going to put tariffs on imports of equipment from around the world. It's done nothing to, 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 to benefit the U.S. manufacturers other than first solar. There's no meaningful manufacturer in the U.S., all it's done is made solar more expensive in the U.S. Um, very high level, you, know, you pay 
let's say 36 to 44 cents a watt for panels in the US right now. In Europe, you're paying like 20 cents a watt. So it's like a really significant difference there on the cost of that. The Inflation Reduction Act brought in a really big carrot. They said, hey, if you manufacture in the US, we're going to give you these incentives to manufacture in the US. And so you've seen pretty much every major international manufacturer come out with announcements about them setting up domestic manufacturing. So that's going to shorten supply times based on these incentives, I think decrease costs as well, make solar finally cheaper in the US as well. And so that's going to be a big benefit as well. So that, that's a long-winded answer. Uh, we could probably have a two-hour session on the Inflation Reduction Act, but it's just uh, it's, it's the biggest tailwind we've seen uh, in this industry ever. Absolutely. So my, my final question regarding the business model and just kind of putting some numbers together so that folks really get the full picture of how it all works. And again, you have a, a slide on your, your investor deck that really does, I think, a good job in explaining that, um, where you know the equation goes to develop a project, we invest about three to 10 cents a watt and the development that's over two to three years. And that equals about 40 cents a watt where UG monetize it at NTP plus the uh, tail revenue is about 21 cents per watt per year on projects over 25 to 40 years. So can you just give us a better understanding of this equation and what that means, you know, as it relates to your current backlog? Yeah, for sure. So uh, in, in essence, that's like the, the value creation framework as we call it, uh, you know, like, like just to repeat those numbers back to you, as we're, as we're going through that two to three year development timeframe, we invest about three to 10 cents per watt on average um, per, per successful project. Uh, that is on things like there's some interconnection studies that we pay for, some early stage uh, design engineering, things like that. Um, and then as we get those projects up to NTP, now as a developer, when you get a project to NTP, which is just like the last major step pre-construction, you've earned virtually your entire value as a developer. The construction is considered very sort of commodity at this point in time. Um, and so that's where you've created this thing of value. Now, the question is, how do you monetize that? What we do, because we're a full lifecycle developer, is we, we, we pay ourselves through, through the, the, the deployment timeframe there. Um, what we, for shorthand, just refer to as a developer fee. That's that 40 cents per watt on average against, the, uh, against our, our current backlog. And then again, like you said, uh, right now we're expecting an average of 21 cents per watt per year um, on the uh, on the, the tail revenue for, you know, on, on average uh, more than three decades from these projects. So, uh, and, you know, so even that tail revenue is, you know, per year of revenue anywhere from two to seven times the, the initial investment that goes into those those projects. Um, the, the current backlog of 350 megawatts, you're going to force me to do some mental math here, uh, but I think that that comes out to what, like 100 and, uh, uh, 140 million US, give or take, um, for developer fees the next few years as that portfolio gets built out, which by itself I'll mention is uh, more, more mental math, but uh, an actuary should be able to do this, right? Um, so that, you know, it's three and a half times, give or take, uh, the current market cap uh, in terms of cash flow from developer fees, plus the uh, the ongoing recurring revenue, which is 70 plus million per, per year on average, um, all, all US dollar figures. So uh, maybe actually my, my multiple on, uh, on a real versus market cap should have been higher, come to think of it. But yeah, I mean, I think it speaks to the upside, speaks to the the, the excitement we have around the business right now for, um, for, for, for kind of the inflection point that we feel we're right, right in the middle of right now. 
Very cool. And by the way, for anybody that's not a real estate mogul or understands real estate, NTP means notice to proceed. So just make sure I probably should have said that earlier. Than you, but hey, okay. No, we, we got I, out there. I did our body. Yeah. You did say it? Okay, good. I just meant No, I could have said it, but. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. We're just double checking. So uh, another point I want to get to here is when it comes to solar, I think we can all agree that there are a lot of benefits to renewables, solar, you know, we're, we're, we're all there, you know, but the, probably the number one, I guess, risk factor, I don't even know if it's a risk, but it might be a risk factor or pushback is, you know, on the energy storage side of things, right. And being able to turn it, you know, for the utilities to turn it off. And then when they turn off the spigot from the energy being used from solar, it then being stored somewhere, right? So love to hear more. I know in the same, in your same investor presentation, you talk about your battery, battery energy storage system initiative. So would love to understand how you're working with utilities to potentially solve this issue. Yeah. So, you know, I think that the, the first decade of meaningful deployment in solar has been a time where, and if I think about the grid itself, right, there's different sources of energy that are feeding into the grid. Um, uh, you know, some of them are on demand, like natural gas plants or what have you. And some of them are, are not like, like uh, solar and wind. Um, but, and also, you know, the, the load that's on the grid is also dynamic in terms of different times of day, etc. So, you know, this has always been a, a dynamic, uh, a, a dynamic um, grid. And, and so these different sources of energy are coming in. Um, but if you look at the 24-hour curve of when solar is produced, it, it's a fairly fairly narrow in terms of the big picture, in terms of in terms of when that's produced. Um, you know, obviously right around the the the, the, the kind of you know lunchtime um, when uh, when the solar is at its peak. So you know, California is the classic classic example of what they call the duck curve. So solar in California. It, the highest penetration for solar of any any continental U.S. state. Um, the as, as solar got built up more and more in California, if you looked at like a twenty four hour map of of the grid, uh, X solar, the solar just kind of kept eating away, eating away, and this became known as the duck curve. And just in the last twelve months, it's gotten to a point where solar now offsets on a on a on a average or good day pretty much the whole energy load during during the middle of the day in California. So it speaks to the need now for energy storage to come in and play a meaningful role in the future of renewable energy and the future of the grid. Um, now, uh, fortunately, energy storage costs have had the same same cost curve that solar has, where, where costs have come down really significantly. Um, you know, one should check a, a, a uh, uh, you know, third-party study to confirm these numbers, but I remember middle of last decade when we were first flirting with it, and going back to the beginning of the conversation, we did a number of off-grid energy storage projects in the first part of the company's history um, when it was mostly for you know, kind of like a more energy resiliency or off-grid reasons, as opposed to the dynamic grid that we're talking about today. But you would get like lithium-ion battery systems middle middle of last decade were were well north of a thousand dollars per kilowatt hour. You're now getting those. Those are now sub two hundred dollars, depending on uh, depending on a number of different factors. So those costs have come down a lot. My probably my favorite favorite stat right now is that in 2022 there was more energy storage deployed in the U.S. than fossil than, like the new fossil fuel capacity. So like energy storage is ramping up in a big way. Um, so what does that mean for UGE and our shareholders? Like number one is it's a, it's a huge additional opportunity. If you take a solar project and you add energy storage to it, you're roughly, and this is this is a rough estimate, 
but you're roughly doubling the value of that project. So the, the, the investment goes up, the overall value goes up. It's kind of like doing two projects for, for the price of one. Um, and, and so from that perspective, it speaks to the added uh, ability for that. Um, and then like just, just generally, the, the, the value of storage is really starting to be understood and recognized. And, and that's partly as the cost comes down, but it's not just about renewable energy. It's about all the other services that energy storage can provide to the grid as well. So resiliency being the, the most obvious one for the, for, for the average person. Uh, but there's a number of, number of other factors like Massachusetts, where we're developing energy storage projects. Uh, they have a specific program that's designed to offset gas peaker plants. Gas peaker plants, very expensive, dirty. Um, and so they're saying, hey, energy storage, we want to incentivize uh, those types of projects to just get rid of the need for peaker plants. Um, and uh, and that's that's happening here. So uh, anyway, um, yeah, so energy storage is, is, is it's, it's time is it's time has come. And um, I think that in the coming years, we'll, we'll see a lot of that uh, in our portfolio as well. I was going to say, how does that affect UGE today? And how is it involved as part of the growth strategy? I mean, does it, is there is there M&A involved here? Is it is it actually looking at various battery storage companies to bring into UGE as a whole that now you have a real full service it's like, hey, not only can we do the community solar project, but here we go. We got the battery for you to that connects to the grid perfectly. Yeah. The, the biggest thing I would point to is that like, what, what is UGE experts in? It's like finding where both land and the grid, where can we develop projects? How do we interconnect it? How do we permit it? How do we engineer it? How do we finance it? Um, how do we contract it? So, so these different aspects are what we're really good at. So as energy storage, as the, the economics have picked up, as the, as the use cases have become solidified, we're in the perfect place to develop these types of projects as well. Um, at the same time, you know, we're like for yeah, just like we do with solar, we work with the leading suppliers for solar, for battery storage, to integrate these systems um, and, and, and build out these projects. So from, from that perspective, like, you know, you mentioned M&A, for example, I, I think we have like the capabilities. I think we have the, the line of sight for the projects and the states and so on that we want to be uh, executing in. So um, primarily, uh, that's what it is. And so, you know, in terms of the pie chart about our backlog, around a quarter is actually energy storage projects now, um, which speaks to, you know, how that's ramping up for us here too. Very cool. All right. So I want to get to a few of the questions that I, I, Love asking everybody on here. You know, again, you've been doing you've been doing kind of the dog and pony show for a while. We were just in Chicago at one of the well, it was it's a different format. It's a really cool format that I really love. But even after you know doing one of those presentations, even doing one-on-one meetings or just meeting with investors, maybe that have heard the story a couple of times, aren't you know, trying to get their feet wet and so you know, what what do investors maybe still get confused? about UGE, and maybe you can answer some of those frequently asked questions here. Yeah, the, the biggest thing is that um, if so, like people will look at the income statement and they'll miss the value that we're creating. Uh, so, you know, if, if it's like we have, um, so in this industry, uh, I mentioned earlier that when a developer gets a project to NTP, they've created virtually 100%, you know, call it 90 plus percent of the value in that project. It just needs to be built out. That takes a bit more time, um, but that value has been created. But if you look at the income statement for a develop, build, own, operate, or like an IPP model, at NTP, you have created zero, uh, zero revenue. The income statement has nothing but overhead, right? Associated with that project. And in fact, 
you need to wait another four to nine months that I mentioned earlier to build out that project before it gets turned on. And then in the quarter that follows, you'll start seeing the, uh, the, the revenue produced by that system. The developer fee that we talked about doesn't even hit the income statement. You actually need to look at the cash flow statement to see how that, that, uh, that flows through. Um, and it really flows through with the difference between um, uh, proceeds from financing activities versus our investments from investment activities. Now, I, I will say, and, and you know, we, you, 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 you know, thank you for complimenting the deck earlier. Um, we have been doing good work, I think, on like, I was going to say telling that story better. I actually want to say like preparing to tell that story better. I think it's still a work in progress, but, but that is for the layman um, or for someone new to UGE, the part that people get really tripped up on. Uh, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, I mentioned earlier about how, you know, there are other public developers. There's, there's kind of a growing class of them. Um, virtually everyone develops and, and sells their projects. Someone might come out with an announcement about, uh, hey, we're selling this project, you know, this, this portfolio for $40 million. And people see $40 million get super excited. You know, UGE this year, we're, um, it won't quite, I don't think, be $100 million, but like in terms of projects that hit NTP this year, it's going to be like close to $100 million USD. Call it like, you know, I don't know, within, 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 uh, within an arm's length. Um, and, 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 but, but, uh, but it's a different, you know, it, it, it flows through the income statement and the, and the financial statements more generally in a much different way. Um, we do it because we know that we're creating more value by doing it, but you do need to spend the time to get to know um, both the, the, the value creation framework that we talked about. I think probably also the team behind the company about like, hey, this team is executing on it. Uh, the, the, these projects are coming. Um, and I think, it, I think once people spend the time doing that, I think they actually get quite excited about the prospects here. Very good. So I want to also, and I ask this to everybody on here, and we touched on one potential risk factor having to do with energy storage. But in your opinion, what would you say are some of the other companies' downside risks or or headwinds or just, just things that folks should really take in consideration when looking at UGE? Yeah, so on, on both sides of it, I mean, you mentioned you mentioned execution and risks. I, I think that, you know, on the one side, you know, for us, we know – we, we know the value of the projects in our backlog, you know, give or take, there's, there's variability around development, but um, you know, I never actually put a, put a sum on it, but just based on the, 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 the valuations we get from third parties on our, on our project as we're projects, as we're financing them, um, you know, the backlog is north of a billion dollars of like total project value USD that we're developing right now. So for us, it's really this matter of like, you know, we talk about it in terms of a flywheel, this flywheel that we're ramping up here um, as we're going to see more and more of these projects flow through in a consistent basis and see that portfolio scale up. So, you know, I think from like a risk and execute ex, risk and execution standpoint, sorry, um, it's it's really a matter of like how well does the team execute? And so I, I touched on this in my last answer, but like I, I'm just really excited and proud about the platform and the team that we built over time. And I think, you know, the presentation that we've highlighted here a few times available on our website you can go in and you can see the um, the, the the headshots and the, the the short bios for the the broadly speaking like the the, the leadership team at UGE and I I know you'll come away impressed or anybody looking at that for the first time in terms of how much experience we have on the team in all the important functions and so maybe to ramble on I'll just say like from a moat perspective there's a lot more there than than people appreciate I think at the first first go as well in terms of like how do you um, how do you go through all those 450 steps? You know, we have a 
seasoned leader of origination, leader of development, leader of engineering, leader of deployment, leader of project finance, leader of capital markets. Um, that, that allows us to uh, see those projects through from front to back. Very good. All right. You know what? You, you answered pretty much all my questions here today that I had uh, prepped for you. So my, my final question then for you here today is, you know, in your opinion, where do you want to see this company in three to five years? And what would you say are the inflection points that'll get you there? Yeah, the, you know, we're really like that inflection point that we're we're, we're at right now in the, in the last couple of quarters here, as we see that portfolio scale, as we see the, 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 the product of all that development work coming out, you know, hitting NTP and hitting, hitting COD, um, you just project that forward three to five years, we'd expect that that backlog that we have right now would be fully deployed, you know, based on the timeline that we talked about here, right? And we're not slowing down, like we're adding more projects to our backlog every year. Um, and so from that perspective, that puts us in a, in a very meaningful uh, size and scale at that point in time. If you um, maybe just try to kind of triangulate uh, we don't have a perfect comp, but if you look at an IPP that's publicly listed that has that type of scale um, of, of operating projects, never mind that ours should be more valuable given that we have the full life cycle approach. But if you just look at that, you're talking about market caps that are north of a billion dollars. So, you know, for us, it's a matter of heads down, execute on the strategy here, see our vision realized in terms of uh, all these projects that we're bringing to fruition. Very good. All right. Well, Nick, with that, I think we're there. Where can our audience go and find more information to follow along UGE? Yeah, no, I, I really appreciate the you know the, the chance to catch up, Bobby. It's always a real pleasure. Um, so on our website, ugei.com, there is an investor section. Uh, we do update uh, our, our investor deck pretty much every month. So early in each month, we'll update uh, update that uh, until you can find it there. And, and also you can find our contact information there as well. So we'd love to hear from you. Investors at UGEI.com is, is one of the ways to reach out. Um, but, uh, but don't be shy. We, we, you know, we, we do understand that the story takes a bit of time to, uh, to, to, to get uh, to the, the learning curve on. Um, so from that perspective, just reach out if you have any questions. And we'd, we'd love to talk, talk to you further. Very good. All right. Well, Nick, thank you so much for joining me, man. Really do appreciate it. Good luck. Stay safe. And I look forward to our next update. Yeah, I look forward to seeing you again soon, Bobby. Take care. Thank you, Nick. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not provided as financial, legal, or any other advice. The information is not investment advice or an offer to buy or sell any securities or make any investment. The views expressed by guest speakers are their own and any reference to third-party products, services, or information does not constitute an endorsement thereof by SNN or its affiliates. SNN expressly disclaims all liability for any individual's use of the information presented in this podcast.